1: Center Studios, at Messiah College, the home of the Center for Research into Improvement Guided Cartography. In Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 24 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast.
2: Drew, this is our final episode of season three. And I think we have a
1: very fitting guest to wrap up the season. That's right, John. And in fact, I think it is safe to say that our guest today is one of the inspirations for the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Liz Covart, the host of the wildly successful Ben Franklin's World, was one of the first people to show me what a historical podcast could be. I'm, I'm thinking along uh, along with the work of Nate DeMeo of the Memory Palace, who was our guest on Episode 6, and the show Backstory, which used to feature Peter Onuf, who is our guest on episode eight? Liz's show first inspired me to think about historical podcasting, and these podcasts were what was on my mind that fateful day when we met at that local coffee shop and started brainstorming about this, our own podcast. James Taylor, who's a New Englander, I know Liz is a New Englander. Uh, he's got this great song
2: called "That's Why I'm Here," and one of the verses in the song talks about him as a celebrity, right? And and you know he says, uh, "Fame and fortune is a curious thing." perfect strangers call you by name, right? I mean, that's in the podcasting world. Liz Covart is uh, definitely the gold standard, but let's talk a little bit about this past season. I mean, again, we're coming to the end here of season three, another great season. I think, uh, what was your, I do this with my kids all the time, whenever we take a vacation, right? What was your favorite part of the vacation? Um, drew, what was your favorite part or moment or moments of season, uh, three here at the way of improvement leads home?
1: Well, you know, I mean, it was extremely exciting to talk Levita baseball with Adrian Burgos Jr. I, you know, I love baseball. We dedicated an episode to baseball, at least in part, every season, and I love the Cardinals and especially Cardinals catcher Yadier Molina. So we got to spend so much time talking about him. And yeah, and, that, and, was and, a,
2: that was a great interview.
1: And we were doing good. You know, we were talking about good history. We were doing, I think, important work. So I, if I if I may, that was a home run. But I also have to say it was fun uh, having my mom in the studio, as embarrassing as that kind of is. She's an avid listener of the show. You know, she, she doesn't miss an episode, even, even before she, uh, her and her business came on as one of our sponsors. But it was kind of nice to give her a peek behind the curtain and see what her boy's up to. So how sure. about you, John? I have so many good memories
2: and of so, so many great guests. One highlight for me was episode 22 when I got the chance to interview my former graduate school professor, Nancy Toms about her Bancroft Prize-winning book on healthcare, I also love Bruce Berglund's interview on the Czech Republic. I got to admit, I think I said this in, in a previous episode, I was skeptical about moving beyond the boundaries of America for that episode. But of all our great episodes this season, we got the best listener feedback from Bruce's discussion of his book, The Castle and the Cathedral, and the way he drew parallels between American history and civil religion. And I was really pleased that we landed Scott Hartley. Actually, you landed Scott Hartley, Drew. That's what producers are for, right? To talk about how the liberal arts will rule the world. The subtitle of his book, The Fuzzies and the Techies. I actually noticed that Hartley was quoted by the public intellectual Anne-Marie Slaughter during her recent commencement address at Indiana University. So when I saw that, I quickly retweeted and said, you need to check out our, our interview with Scott Hartley.
1: Yes, well, we definitely had some great episodes this year. And we're, you know, we've got guests lined up for season four already, people who are interested in coming on the show. So we're, you know, we're gonna keep this energy up. But to do so, we do need your help. We are able to bring you insightful historical content because of the continued support of sponsors like Lisa DeGuardi and Ron Schooler, and our official corporate sponsor. I guess she's not really a corporation, but our official business partner, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit. For your future. As always, I too am so thankful for the support
2: we have received this season for our work. Uh, in addition to the gold supporters that you just mentioned, I wanted to just mention, give a shout out here to our Sterling supporters as well. Jay Eldred, David Onion, Robert Nair, Edie Overdune, and Brenda Schoolfield. As I've said many times, we always need good American history, but we especially need good American history in times of great political and
1: social change. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Yeah, and if you are interested in becoming a patron, just head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support. We continue to add new patrons every month. And I should add, we are putting the finishing touches on our summer plans. While this is the last official episode of season three, with season four beginning again in the fall, we are going to be recording a handful of special, and I should add, patrons only bonus episodes over the summer. Everyone from our $1 a month shilling supporters on up will be given exclusive access to this content, wherein we will discuss uh, various relevant topics, because even though our season may be over, we know the need for good historical thinking will continue in the summer months. Also, readers of the blog may have noticed our pledge map. We are trying to get at least one pledge from all 50 states in the Union, which does include Hawaii. Comments from senior cabinet members notwithstanding. At this point, we have 16. We just added Illinois this last month, plus one patron from the District of Columbia. But I will add we have not yet had a pledge from Missouri, despite my efforts to get as much Cardinals talk on the air as possible. Nor have we received a patron from New Jersey, despite dedicating an entire episode in season one, episode nine. I should add to the patron saint of Jersey himself, the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Can you explain that, John? I'm very disappointed by that Jerseyans. You need to step up. You need to
2: listen to something while you're laying there the, on the Jersey shore this summer, uh, down in Wildwood, ocean city, seaside Heights, long beach Island, get out there and download the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, but also we need patrons too. So, uh, So help us out there. And, um, you know, if you don't do it for us, do it for Bruce. Uh, Maybe we'll have a future Bruce Springsteen episode coming up, Drew.
1: Yeah, but we all, I mean, Great Plains. We also have a big sea of white in the middle of the country still. So that's something, we've got got a good, solid, you know, this is, I I keep laughing because this is the most uncharacteristic political looking map because we've got a good, solid South group of donors, but we also got some West Coast elites among our donors. That's right. It's it's not anything you're going to see during election season, but... Uh, we do have plenty of plenty of states, so we're going to put an updated map up on the blog, and you can, if you're from one of those states that hasn't been highlighted, maybe just consider giving one dollar a month, and then you'll get the exclusive content, and you'll be helping us in our 50 state strategy.
2: Yeah, and Drew, I'm really looking
1: forward to those
2: summer episodes, those short episodes that we'll do, uh, just to keep our readers connected. Um, But again, you don't get those short episodes unless you are uh, part of the
1: uh, Way of Improvement Leads Home contributors team. And as you mentioned earlier, we do indeed need good American history in times of great political and social change. And I think this will be the theme of your commentary today, John.
2: In a recent article at the History News Network, the noted historian of the Civil War era, David Blight, suggested that our current president, Donald Trump's greatest threat to society and to our democracy is not necessarily his authoritarianism, but what Blight described as his essential ignorance of history, of policy, of political process, and of the Constitution. Blight pointed to Trump's recent statement that Andrew Jackson, his hero, could have saved the country from the Civil War. Jackson, of course, was long dead before the major events in the sectional crisis that led to war took place. But the problem, as Blight sees it, runs even deeper than this. Saying that if Andrew Jackson had been around, we might not have had the Civil War, Blight notes, is like saying that one strong, aggressive leader can shape, prevent, or move history however he wishes well into the future. According to Blight, Trump's learning of American history must have stopped a long time ago. And he adds, I wish this is funny and not deeply disturbing. If a president makes history, which he can and does on any given day, he should know some history. He must be able to think in time, to think by analogy, precedent, and comparison. He needs perspective to find wisdom. Decisions ought never be made in a vacuum. Blake quotes James Baldwin, who in a 1965 essay says that history is not merely something to be read, and it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. It could scarcely be otherwise since it is to history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspirations. Blight concludes, For presidents, history should be part of their daily bread, nutrition to sustain the weary, the basic equipment of their trade. There is much wisdom in Blight's words. Today, pundits and politicians are full of answers for how to get American democracy on the right track while others are content with the ongoing culture wars and see no problem with the virtual collapse of civil society in the United States. One small way of cultivating the virtues necessary for a thriving democracy is through the study of history. If you listened to episode four of this podcast, you heard our interview with Stanford education professor and historian Sam Weinberg. In his well-known book, Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts, Weinberg has argued convincingly that it is the very strangeness of the past that has the best potential to change our lives in positive ways. Those who are willing to acknowledge that the past is a foreign country, a place where they do things differently than we do in the present, set off on a journey that has the potential to transform society. An encounter with the past in all its fullness, void as much as possible of present-minded agendas, can cultivate virtue in our lives. Such an encounter teaches us empathy, humility, and selflessness. We learn to remove ourselves from our present context, if only for a moment, in order to encounter the culture and beliefs of a foreign country. Sometimes the people who inhabit that country may appear strange, when compared with our present sensibilities. Yet the discipline of history requires that we understand them on their own terms, not ours. History demands we set aside our moral condemnation about a person, idea, or event from the past in order to first understand it. One cannot underestimate how the virtues learned through historical inquiry also apply to our civic life. The same skills of empathy and understanding that a student or reader of history learns from studying the seemingly bizarre practices of, say, the Aztec Empire, might also prove to be useful at work, when you don't know what to make of the beliefs or behavior of the person in the cubicle next to yours. In their study of popular attitudes towards history, Roy Rosenzweig and David Thelen offer an excellent example of the socially transformative power of engaging with the past. One-sixth of the 1,453 people they polled believed that an awareness of how people had passed through experience in the past helped respondents to understand them in the present. These respondents believed that it was equally important to understand the past of a stranger as it was to understand their own. On arriving in New York City, a Jamaican-born immigrant claimed that hearing the stories of how other immigrants arrived in New York before her helped her to humanize them and learn how to live with the city's high level of diversity. Her encounter with people from different cultures and backgrounds led her to conclude that there was a lot in common between her immigrant experience and the experience of her neighbors. As Rosenzweig and Thelen put it, Understanding the past was a first step toward respecting and even embracing unfamiliar people, practices, and faiths. In the end, we need the kind of skills the study of the past can inculcate in our lives. The very practice of entering the past, no matter the character of the people we meet there, is an important practice in our quest to make the world a better place. History can help heal the culture wars and, to quote Abraham Lincoln, go a long way toward binding up the nation's wounds and preserving our last best hope of earth.
1: Our guest on today's episode is Liz Kovart, the host and founder of Ben Franklin's World a podcast that is consistently ranked as one of the nation's most popular American history podcasts. As Covart has reminded us in all 136 episodes, Ben Franklin's World is a show for people who love history and for those who want to know more about the historical people and events that have impacted and shaped our present-day world. In addition to her work on Ben Franklin's World, Covart is the Digital Projects Editor at the Omohundru Institute of Early American History and Culture in Williamsburg, Virginia. She received her Ph.D. in American History at the University of California, Davis, where she studied with Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Alan Taylor. Covart's work at the intersection of scholarly history, public history, and digital humanities has pushed us to think differently about how to forge a career as a professional. We
2: are thrilled today on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast to have history podcaster extraordinaire Liz Kovar on the show. Liz, welcome to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me, John and Drew. It's a great honor to be here. Um, I've been an avid reader of your blog for many years.
2: Great. Actually, Drew and I are looking at at each other right now. We're very, very disappointed already in the interview, Liz, because you didn't start out with, hello, and welcome to the Way of Improvement Lito podcast.
0: <laughs> you know, I listened to your episode when you debated that. You were like, we need a, an entry level. And then I went and I was like, wow, I guess I really do do that all the time. But everybody does. You know, John Oliver has, hello, hello, hello. That's right. That's right. And everybody has one. So, yes. All right. Well, um, Hello, John and Drew. Thank you so much for having me on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. That's great. Perfect.
2: Awesome. Perfect. You made our day, Liz. You made our day. Um, now, I know you've talked a lot about this before in various settings, uh, but tell us how you got involved uh, with history podcasting.
0: Well, I started, it, got, I got into podcasting as a listener. Um, I finished my graduate training at the University of California, Davis in 2011. I was living in New York at the time because my dissertation was on Albany. It was so much easier to research and write a dissertation on Albany, New York, living in Albany, New York. And uh, when I decided I didn't want to be a professor, wouldn't be pursuing the academic job market, my partner Tim said, you know, I need a change. He applied for a job at Google and we came back to New England and to Boston particularly. And I was walking around the city. You know, I love walking and I was always listening to something. But then I was reading this book, um, Todd Henry's Accidental Creative, and he's talking about podcasts. I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. Like, wait, there are these on-demand audio programs I can download and stream and and just learn about stuff I want to learn about, like when I want to learn about it. Mm-hmm. And so I started um, listening to his podcast and then listening to other podcasts on social media and platform building and writing. And very quickly, like within two weeks, I was like, I need a podcast about history. And I went searching for one. And what I found were like a mix of like the cheerful Wikipedia article about some topic. And it was like boring to me because, you know, I had a PhD in history and I wanted something more in depth. Or someone would read, a host would read a whole slew of books on a particular topic and then rant and rave about them for hours on end. And I was like, hmm this isn't for me. I don't want your presentist views on it. Like I just kind of want to know the behind the scenes. Right. And there were no podcasts about early American history. And I'm kind of provincial, John. I just love early American history. And that's <laughs> what I want to do all the time. Sure. So I said, okay, I, I kind of complained about it for a while, but I grew up in one of those households where if you see something that needs to be done, you don't just complain about it. You go and you do something about it. And so I decided I would do a podcast, and then like a good historian, I spent 18 months researching the media right. and figuring out what I would podcast about. And then on October 2014, I launched Ben Franklin's World, um, which is a podcast about early American history, and it was the type of podcast you know I wanted to listen to, Something, uh, a podcast where I talked to other historians, um, so you got to hear other historical voices, a podcast that looked at what kind of historical sources they were using... Talking about their books, but not giving you like opinions about their books and trying to, you know, convey the importance not just of history is facts, figures and events, but history is people, both people of the past and people of the present, um, you know, working to construct the history. Sure. And so sure. that was a podcast I created and. I wish it was a more glamorous story. I wish you could say, I'm going to be a podcaster and this is my life's goal. But like, I started as a hobbyist. I was going to write lots of books and articles. And then within two and a half years, it's gone from avocation to vocation. Okay. So that's how so, it happened. So you didn't
2: see a great light in the sky or something while you were walking in Boston Commons or something.
0: <laughs> no, no, there was no
2: like flash from the right, gold right.
0: dome on the city on the hill. No, right, right. it was just like, there's nothing, nothing interesting for me to listen to in this space. So I better create something. Good,
2: good. Tell us a little bit about, For uh, I'm assuming a lot of our listeners uh, have heard Ben Franklin's world. Uh, since we kind of run in the same kind of uh, orbit of American History Podcast. But for those who haven't and maybe are new, tell us a little bit about, first, the format of the show. What can we expect if we, if we download uh, Ben Franklin's World? And then maybe tell us a little bit, give us a kind of inside glimpse into uh, what it takes to create each show. Um, every, is it every week, Liz, that you're, that you're on? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So if you're interested in Ben Franklin's world, every Tuesday
0: at 1 a.m., there's a new episode that releases. Um, That's Eastern Time, 1 a.m. And it's an interview driven show. So at the time when I was looking at the podcast space, there weren't interview shows with historians. And I really actually wanted to create a narrative podcast. But John, do you know how much work that is? I know. Like Drew, if you started that, you'd never
1: finish.
2: My uh my even these little commentaries that I do on our podcast, it takes me
1: forever to write. Yeah. And I'm always nagging get it, trying to get them done. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I was like, I don't have time for that. So I decided I would go with interview-driven because I knew lots of historians. And I also know that historians like to talk about what they're doing. Right, sure. Um, so it is an interview show and each show format is pretty much the same. My research showed that listeners, they like a little variation, but mostly they want it, they want consistent format because they plan you into their lives. So I'm you know, if someone's taking me jogging, they want to know they have approximately thirty five to fifty five minutes of of audio to go on their jog. Like they've sure. slotted me into their lives. So they want that consistency. Yeah, I like that. Okay. So the show is an interview. I have a segment called the time warp, which is, um, a hypothetical history question, which I do because I like people to think historically and think about contingency that nothing is foreordained to have happened. And, um, then there's some reviews from, you know, summary thoughts from both me and, and the guest at the end.
2: So how does it, so, so tell me about, um, you put one on every week, uh, drop one. There we go. That's proper podcasting language. What goes in, you know, take me through the week as you're preparing for, for the, for the episode. I mean, you have a, you have an author, you have a book to deal with, you have the production, so forth. Where do you work? How does that all happen?
0: Well, I work mostly from home uh, here in Boston. I have a little studio, little office. And, um, my work pattern has changed a little bit over time. So as I said, it started out as a hobby. So I've always really read the book cover to cover because it's important for me to be prepared. And if you've ever listened to like even the great interviewers and they do a book, you get really great segments on the beginning of the book and really great segments on the end of the book. And like the middle of the book, it's like everybody is like treading water. Like no one knows how to, how to talk about it. Um, so I really do prepare. Um, so I read the book and then I sit down and I come up with questions and I do try as much as possible, providing that I've left enough time in the week, try to pull my audience, so to speak, and ask them what they would like the guest historian to answer about a particular topic. But I try to focus on really one or two of the most important themes. So I want to take you through a book, but I can't always take you through the whole book, depending on the length and how much detail there is. So I try to focus on one or two themes and then I structure the interview around those themes, and the goal is I want to ask enough questions. I always plot out twelve regular questions for the interview, and sometimes we get to more than that, and sometimes we never get to that sure. so that it varies um, but I try to plot those questions out and then I send them to my my historians in advance because a lot of people actually get nervous about talking about their work and they need to think about how they talk about their work. so I use those questions as a guide, and sometimes they don't get asked the same way I wrote them down or Follow up questions come up during the conversation so we don't get to other questions. But I do that prep work and then I interview the historian um, from my computer via Google Voice and a program called Audio Hijack Pro. And then I edit. And that's probably the part and the workflow that's changed the most. Initially, I'd sit down, I'd always worked with an audio engineer because I realized that in my research, I was never going to take the time to learn all the plugins on how to balance everything, how to how to get out distortions it was just always just easier for me to hire someone to do that
2: i should just add right here sorry to interrupt but our our audio our audio studio producer josh just gave you the thumbs up on that on that little last part of your your answer there yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: i've always hired an audio professional but i i would sit down and i'd listen to the audio and then i would write out these detailed edit editing requests that i'd want my engineer to make and it got to the point that you know, I started in October. By that August, I met him at Podcast Movement, which is a big national conference for podcasters. And Toby sat down with me and he said, Liz, I'm just going to show you how to start using audio editing software. Um, and so sure enough, like it wasn't rocket science. Like I could make basic edits, you know, cut, paste, delete, those sorts of things. And then it's like, you know, when you start writing and you're editing, you're writing and then you do it longer and you just keep editing and you get better at it. And that's just what's happened. So I edit my show pretty thoroughly. I now work with, uh, Daryl Darnell, who's my, uh, audio engineer and he edits the show. So my show is now getting like four editorial passes before you hear the episode. Um, I really, you know, this has become my chief form of scholarly output. So I want it to be the best that it can be. And I guess that's a shift, you know, it's gone from hobby to, you know, this is it. This is my scholarship. If I'm not going to actively put out a book every few years, like you're going to get a podcast every week.
2: Excellent. I think, I think, uh, you know, we hear the quality obviously every week of of how professionally done it is. So yeah, nice work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually that gets us to our next question because I, I mentioned in the top of the episode today that, that. You know your work when you started Ben Franklin's World. I I became a member of your audience pretty immediately, and and you were one of the, the inspirations to me when when I finally decided to approach John about doing this project. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could talk more about your intended audience. I'm sure your your whole audience isn't made up of. Um, grad students trying to figure out what they're going to do or studying for comps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I the, uh, side note, I, have often used, uh, your wonderful interviews as, as good notes for comp study, but, um, you know, who is your audience and what has their response been generally?
0: Well, there's like the made up audience that I thought that it would be and then like the reality. Um, So I created a podcast avatar for my ideal audience. Her name is Janet Watkins. She's a 22 year old pre-med student at SUNY Buffalo, and she's forced to take a history credit late in her college days because, you know, she needs one of those gen ed credits. And it's like the last thing that Janet Watkins wants to do is be in a history class. She's like, there's so many dead white men. You know, she's a woman of color and all they do is talk about Dudes, <laughs> um, so I have this scene in my head where Janet Walkins has a work study job at the student clinic, and she's listening to one of my podcasts because it was assigned in this class. And her boss finds her in the supply closet, not working, but listening to my podcast. <laughs>
2: that's awesome. So
0: that's that's my that's my podcast avatar. In reality, my audience skews older. Um, you know, it's been a while since I did a a survey of my audience and I do need to do one, another one. But when I did it in 2015, um I had mostly adult, you know, older white male audience. Um are three quarter over three quarters um history lovers. They're not professional historians. Sure. Um, so that is that big general audience I wanted to get. I do have lots of women who listen to my podcast because they're always writing in with questions. And I mean, my audience is just great. They're just so active. You know, they email me a lot. You know, they say if you get seven emails a week from your audience as a podcaster, you're doing well. And wow. I get more than that. Wow. Um, you know, they're always emailing me or messaging me or tweeting me with episode topics. So, you know, that's what dictates the show pretty much now is like, what do my listeners want? And I try to f- match up books um, because, you know, historians with a book to hawk are the, like the easiest historians to book um, for an interview. Um, so I'm always trying to match those up. Um, but yeah, they're fantastic and they're people who have a real deep interest in history. You know, there are kind of people they, they want, they appreciate the past. They want to learn more about it. They don't always agree with the authors that we have on the show, but
2: neither do historians. So (laughs) it's, it's great. That's right. Liz, um, one of the one of the things uh, about the way, and you've mentioned this, one of the things you've you've done to kind of forge your professional career, you mentioned you know I'm not going to churn out a book every two years. My contribution to the field is through podcasting. Um, you know, talk about sort of your uh, your journey. you know you you've crafted for yourself a very different kind of career as a professional historian. Um, and i think it's a, it's a career that is is compelling i think to me and to many of our many of our listeners so uh maybe you could you could share a little bit about you know the you know the 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 way in which you've kind of begun to think about or you already are thinking about your uh your life as a historian.
0: Well, my career definitely is different. So I, I finished graduate school and I knew I didn't want to be a professor. Um I'm a I'm a doer. I like forward momentum and I just really didn't think that the tenure track was going to give me that kind of situation that I I, I wanted. Sure. Um so I thought maybe then I wanted to go back to the park service. I had been in my college days a seasonal interpretive ranger for the Boston National Historical Park for five seasons. And I enjoyed that, but I also knew I wanted to go to grad school because I didn't want to just keep talking about the Battle of Bunker Hill and the same basic facts every day. Right. Um, so I sought out some internships with some smaller organizations here in Boston to try and figure out what I wanted to do. But what I found was, at least here, most of the people who run public history sites end up becoming administrators and they do less history work and more nonprofit administration work. And I was like, no, I definitely want to be a historian. So I decided, well if I can't do those things and I don't quite know what I want to do, I'm just going to, I'm going to write lots of books and articles. I honestly thought I would, I would take my advisor, Alan Taylor on and see if I could write more books than he could. (laughs)
2: Good luck. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and as I was taking some writing classes at a local writing center, because Alan was a, a great advisor and he really took the time to teach his students and me how to write. And so I became obsessive with writing. So I was like, how can I improve it? Um. So I went to this writing center, was taking classes on like fiction and poetry, sentence diagramming. And it sounds really boring, but it's like language has such power. The yeah. way we communicate history is so important that those classes were worth it. And meanwhile, I started a blog which was something I was told not to do in graduate school. You shouldn't start a blog until you had 10 years, what they said in 2007. Sure. And um, I started a blog and the whole point of the blog was, I'm not going to do this you know, professor thing and I'm right. figuring it out. And how can I make my life work as an independent scholar? Like, How can I actually make a living for that? And I was fortunate along the way because my partner is an engineer for Google and we could live off his one income. Why I tried my hand at freelance writing and all these other things to try and make money. Um, so this, uh, the role of that is I never really made money as a freelance writer. Um, I got really sucked into podcasting. And as I said, the, that podcast just took off really fast. You know, in October, 2014, I launched with 288 downloads by that January, I had almost 51,000 for the month, um, for that month. And then it just kept going up to the point now where we have over 160,000 downloads a month. Wow. Um, so the growth on that was really quick. The Omohundro Institute, I reached out to them for help and they were very, very helpful and very supportive. Um, they recognized it as a professional media source before I recognized that it was a professional media source. And so they, they gave me lots of advice about how to professionalize it. Sure. And, um, I took that advice. So the podcast has grown in tandem with their advice. And, um, I started devoting more and more time for that. And then it was, well, okay, if I'm going to do this whole podcast thing, How can I make money from that? And it took me a long time to wrap my head around monetizing one's podcast because the goal of the show had always been to create wide public awareness about the work of professional historians in the historical process. And I wasn't selling anything. I just really wanted to give people information for free. And in podcasting, if you take on a sponsor... I can tell you till I'm blue in the face that it is an ad, but because you just hear my voice and my listeners connect with me, they also take it in some ways as part endorsement. So I knew I had to be careful with that. So it took me a long time to figure out how to monetize. And then, you know, I had the Omohundro Institute sponsor a series and Cornell University Press um, sponsored 12 episodes last year. And then, um, you know, the Omohundro Institute has come back on as a full-time sponsor. But, uh, you know, I had to figure that out. So I'd blog about that. Um, but yeah, I was always just trying to make it work and it's an interesting career. Um, I think there's lots of holes in the, I I would say that my biggest, the biggest thing that has happened in my career is I just saw a couple holes in the historical profession and just tried to fix them. And then in doing that, it's led to a job.
2: Yeah, so sure. we'll talk about that job here in a few minutes. What's really interesting, Liz, as I hear you talk, you know, early in the, your answer to that question, you you talked about how, you know, you didn't want to be a public historian who just talked about the same thing every day, right? And and that really, you know, I've I've thought I've thought at different times, you know, wouldn't it be cool to sort of go into more sort of public history at a museum or historical site? But it really does kind of limit you, right? Because you're you're I don't want to say stuck because you know there are a lot of people doing good things. But if you do have kind of these cur- this curiosity in all kinds of areas, much of the traditional public history uh, training that graduate students get, right to go into fields in public history, you really end up right at a place where you're telling the same story every single day um, and thinking about more you know creative ways or more creative ways how to tell the same story but there really has been no kind of slot right for for this kind of public history in which you are engaging with uh, all kinds of topics on a regular basis. So it really was I like the way you put that. It really was a hole, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean it, it is a whole, and I I do think public historians do a great service and they do a lot of great work and I Absolutely, do think the job yeah. the job varies. You know, if you're a curatorial person and you're coming up with different exhibits to talk about different things. I think that would be exciting, but I, I trained as an academic, not as a public historian. So I didn't have that training and that was actually curious, curiously, one of the aspects that prompted me to get involved with social media and blogging and even podcasting was, I was applying for internships in Boston to like the big organizations like Historic New England right. and the Old South Meeting House and the Bostonian Society. I had a Ph.D. in history with a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning historian. Yeah, yeah. I have felt like I had a sign out there that said, have Ph.D., we'll work for free. Right, right. And I couldn't get an internship because they wanted the students from Simmons Library Sciences program that had some tech skills. Sure. Sure. So I found I needed to to build those up and I I do think that's one of the more adaptable things about the public history field is those students come out with all sorts of training that we don't get right um right. that we should be getting I think in um historians but I I should also say I I really don't like the dichotomy between public historians and academic historians yeah. I do believe that there's specialties but at the heart we're all historians and we're all doing important work and um you know and we, also, we're we all we're on
2: this together. Yeah, we all have a kind of public, uh, you know, public. Uh, what is history if it's not
1: communicating to the to the public? Right, right. Um, so let's let's shift directions here just a little bit, and um, I'm going to put you on the spot. I know, I'm, I'm sure you love all your episodes and guests equally, uh, like any good parent of a, uh, would. But has there been an episode or two that stand out in your mind as being particularly exceptional? that are you know maybe our listeners would want want to go and download first
0: you know every every year or so there's always a couple episodes that stand out and it's usually because i've improved something and it's like you can hear that i got better at it um, but this year the the one that stands out in my mind still is episode 130 which is paul revere's ride through history and it's a different kind of episode it's it's part of the preview for the doing history to the revolution series which will explore both the history of the revolution and the histories of the revolution. And it's also different in that it's four narratives interwoven into a narrative style episode. So I've finally gotten around to all that narrative I wanted to write for podcasts. Um, But what's also special and different about it is it's also the first time I use sound. Um, So they're horse sounds. In oh, that really? episode. And there's actually even one voice actor in that episode who plays a Paul, the part of Paul Revere. And um, it was just a really exciting and challenging way to tell stories. And it's also the most popular episode in the category. It's got like over 41,000 downloads. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it's done that since April 18th. Okay.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna. I I have that one queued up. I haven't gotten to it yet, Liz. Have you listened to that one yet? Yes, I have. Yeah, good, good. So you can affirm how I can great affirm. it is. It is it is <laughs> fabulous. Well, and and
1: I mean and I mean this quite seriously. You, you know, you can you can start at the beginning and of of I mean, obviously, it's going to take you a long time because Liz, you are a prolific podcaster, much more prolific than we are. But um, you know, you, there there's so much great stuff, and and you can really find pick out the episodes that seem to be touching on the subjects that you are most interested in and that's a lot of how I listen too is is I look especially for the the historians who either whose work i've I've read or whose work I've been meaning to read but um, you know yeah that's a great that's a great tip for a first uh, starting point.
0: Andrew, you make a good point. one of the things I didn't describe is I've designed each episode so it stands alone. You don't need to be a historical expert in any topic to listen to any episode so you can do like exactly what you do, which is go through find the topics that are of interest to you and just listen to those episodes.
2: Right. Yeah. We we struggle with that a little bit here because we have this kind of opening banter where we go back and forth and there's always a lot of kind of current events and stuff. So I often wonder, like, are you know, will our episodes kind of be dated? The interviews usually aren't dated. No, no. But the the commentary and the opening banter, sometimes I worry that it'll, you know, be a little dated or maybe it'll be like a period piece. Right. For future historians. We're,
1: We're creating primary
2: documents. There you go. There you go. Um, Drew, before you mentioned um, that you listen to Liz's podcast to help you uh, uh, get the get the uh, crux of kind of new books in the field and so forth, so let's put Liz on the spot here. Um, you talk to a lot of early American historians. You also read a lot of good books on early American history. Uh, you know, just just from doing 136 of these episodes, give our listeners maybe someone who some of them who aren't familiar with. The kind of uh, historiography, or the way in which the field of early American history is moving, give us a give us a sense of the field um, from from all of your experience talking to these authors and reading these books.
0: Okay, well, this is observational, just based on the stuff that I've seen and read. Um, yeah, of course, of course. I'd- I do think that the field is tending towards more violent, gory and fearful. You know, they're trying to portray the fact that the American revolution, it may be a glorious event, but it was also a very violent and divisive event. Yeah. Um, and there's no more sugarcoating of, you know, highlighting what the Patriots did at the exclusion of loyalists. It's no, we're going to talk about loyalists and how they were forced to leave their home sometimes, or were beaten or feared for their lives during the revolution. Um, you know, war, they're talking about the fearful and violent aspects of war. So there, you read a lot more about like what a bullet wound will do to you um, okay. at the time of the revolution. I also think that I'm seeing a trend um, where people are embracing older arguments, that they're going back to the work of the early uh, 20th century, maybe even the late 19th century, and reexamining those arguments with modern day historiographical techniques and and analytical techniques i think that's probably why we're seeing more histories about elites or using elite records so you know um i've joked about this with and it's not even really joking it's a a serious question on my part with everyone on the uh, show this year who's come on to talk about thomas jefferson it's like what is it about thomas jefferson like what don't we know about this guy and they have really good answers which is he was prolific, and these sources tell us so much about the slaves who lived on his plantation, the people who who were his tenants about architecture, about music so you know depending on the pers- you know the elite person, you can get a lot of history by looking at their papers um so you know the book may be about Thomas Jefferson, but the, it's also talking a lot about you know the common folk who lived around him yeah and I also see a lot of both local and global histories so local in the sense of. Smaller cities and locations, even backcountry locations that have nothing to do with, say, Boston, Philadelphia, New York or Charleston um, are being covered as well as saying, "Okay, well, let's look at how, you know, the Haitian Revolution affected how Americans viewed the American Revolution or how the slave trade in this part of the Caribbean or in this part of Africa affected the development of slavery um, in early America as, as a whole. So I think you're, you know, I don't want to call them comparative studies, but in a way they kind of are comparative. So those are some of the things I'm seeing now. Um, we all know this changes over time, so who knows what it'll be next year.
2: It's funny that you started off with the violence, uh, and the American revolution, because as I, as I was coming over here to do this podcast today, I checked my, my mailbox and sitting there was a copy of I'm blanking on his first name. Is it hook or hook?
1: Uh,
2: oh, it's Holger. Holger. Hook. Holger. 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 Holger hook scars of yeah. independence. Is that the name of the book? Which, yeah. Which deals with the sort of, again, this whole concept of violence, uh, and in the American revolution. So a uh, little bit of a irony there. Um, We don't have much time left, Liz, but tell us, uh, you have a new job and you've alluded to it a few times here, but you have, you are now, uh, I don't know if you've started yet, but you're, you will be working for the Omohundro Institute, uh, of early American history and culture in Williamsburg. Uh, you've talked a little bit about how your vocational path kind of led you there, but what will you be doing? What's your, what's your new gig?
0: Yes. Well, I have started, I'm the digital projects editor for the Omohundro Institute, my primary responsibility is to produce episodes of Ben Franklin's World and the Doing History series, and then continue consulting on other digital projects and platforms that they're, they're working on and help develop those. So it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity because it means long-term support for the podcast, which the Omahondro wow. Institute has greatly come to appreciate, um, which is gratifying, but also the opportunity for me to do more in terms of supporting their mission, which is really to support the work... And the scholars and the people who are interested in early American history, they do so much to support the scholarship of early American history on many different levels. And I'm just really excited to be part of that.
2: Yeah, that's great that that the folks at Omohundro, people like Karen Wolf and others, uh, you know, not only see this as their their institute, not only in the scholarly terms, but now they're sort of, in the, they're starting to come around and seeing the kind of public, um, public dimensions, Omahundro and McNeil Center and these kind of early American places have always been about scholarship. And there hasn't been a whole lot of kind of public outreach. So I was thrilled to see uh, that you were going to be working there and bringing some um, some of your uh, talents as a podcaster to uh, Williamsburg.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm actually remembering one another great episode to check out of yours is your interview with with Joshua Piker about editing the William & Mary Quarterly, which is I, I thought was just a great way to bring what is this kind of cornerstone of early American scholarship, something that those of us in graduate school spend a lot of time reading, but it, it, illustrating why it is so is so important and could be such a wonderful resource to any his, history lover, either inside or outside of the academy.
0: Yeah, it's true. That episode's part of our Doing History, How Historians Work series Um And that just came about because the Omahundro was helping me. They brought me down to Williamsburg, you know, to run through my show. And I mentioned, you know, listeners are starting to email me with questions like how historians research and how they write about history. And the Omahundro came back and said, hey, why don't we sponsor one episode a month on your show called Doing History, How Historians Work? And so that episode was meant to, you know, in conjunction with the other episodes in that series, kind of show you how historians know what they know about the past and I know pundits like to say people aren't interested in history, but I have found that they are not only interested in history big time, they're also very interested in how historians work.
2: Um. Well, our time is up, Liz, but tell us, uh, how can we A, find the podcast, and B, uh, learn more about you and your work?
0: Ben Franklin's World is available everywhere. You can download a podcast. We even have our own app. So if you go to iTunes or Google Play Music or Stitcher, and look for Ben Franklin or Ben Franklin's World, you'll find it. Or you can go to the app store and look for Ben Franklin, and you'll find the Ben Franklin's World app. And I'm available online. You can tweet me at Liz Covart or send me an email at Liz
2: at com. Excellent. Uh, again, we have been talking with Liz Kovart, uh, the host and founder and what else? Proprietor uh, of Ben Franklin's World, uh, one of the great uh, early American history podcasts. Thanks for taking some time in your busy schedule, Liz, to, to chat with us, uh, us lesser folks here at The Way of Improvement Leads Home.
0: Drew and John, thank you so much for having me. It was great. great.
2: You know, I said this, Drew, on the uh, interview with Liz. I mean, I, I feel like I have been running in the same circles of, with Liz now for years, but we have actually never met face-to-face. Uh, I don't even think we've even talked uh, until this podcast. So uh, it's such a familiar voice from listening to Ben Franklin's world, but it was just good to at least listen to her, explain her vision, talk about her road to podcasting, and so forth. Again, another great interview.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, we've we kind of said this over both, both at the top of the show and during the interview. But, you know, when she talks about kind of discovering this new career potential opportunity, filling this hole and, and, and really exploring what a, a historical podcast could be, you know, for me as a graduate student, that was a really formative thing hearing that for the first time. And you know, I've been a listener of, of, of Ben Franklin's world basically since the beginning. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it is a big inspiration for for how I am thinking about my career um, as I as as I finish up my my graduate work.
2: Yeah, Liz definitely has been a kind of trendsetter, a sort of innovative person uh, in the field that I think we all need to uh, pay attention to if we haven't uh, been paying attention to her already. And again, I'm really excited about the work she's going to do uh, with Omahundro, as I said in the uh as I said in the interview, I'm really excited
1: that the folks at Omohundro are seeing uh, the benefit of this, uh, this kind of public outreach. And that connection, I think, is a really interesting one because, of course, you know, located there in William & Mary in Williamsburg, this is kind of, you know, one of the traditional ivory towers, I guess you could say, for for historical scholarship, embracing this very new medium, this person who's thinking about a historical thinking and avenues that are traditionally outside of what we would consider scholarly production. And actually, I think that's one of the things I really like about listening to Liz, is she is simultaneously so innovative, yet she's still very much rooted in the historical methods of her training. In, In a certain sense, it reaffirms that, yes, we as historians need to be thinking about how we adapt to the digital age or the 21st century or whatever, but we have been doing something right, and we will continue to be doing something right as we move forward, because... Historical thinking is really relevant and I think Liz does a great job of of demonstrating that.
2: No, yeah, I think I think as, you know, funding for the history and the funding for history and the humanities starts to get cut, you know, we can't rely on the usual sources for help, whether it be the university or the huge endowments. I think it's time for historians to be a little more entrepreneurial, a little more creative. Uh, and sort of uh, continuing to uh, get our message out there. Not necessarily even particular messages about particular time periods, but some of the things that I talked about in the commentary about the power of history to shape everyday life. So again, a great way to wrap up the season, Drew. And speaking of that, I think it's been a great season.
1: I think it has been, and I'm really looking forward to next season.
2: So I guess that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Uh, We will see you in the fall if you're one of our Patreon supporters, will see you very soon. And in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home.
1: This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. This episode is brought to you through the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, and our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting discovering the right college fit for your future. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher you're using so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of the High Center at Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Liz Kovart. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew durley Hermeling, And your host is John Fia.